Welcome to Huntland. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. I'm Joe Baia, joined with Clint Flowers again this week, and this week's show is brought to you by Alabama Ag Credit. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops, because sometimes natural resources need financial resources, and while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. All right, Clint. Well, a little later in the show, we're going to be talking about self-directed IRAs and buying land within them. Before we get there, we're going to check in with Ben Maddox and Acre Trader. They've got a really uh, good farmland value update and also learn a little bit about how you can use those same IRAs uh, to buy, you know, Acre Trader's stock, essentially. How's your week been going this week? Good. We're wide open. Same here, man. Same here. A lot of folks uh, taking advantage of the end of the year to make some moves, especially uh, tax advantage moves. And that's really going to be the focus of today's show. So before we get into this week's show, let's check back in with Ben Maddox over at AcreTrader and see what's going on for this week's farmland value segment. Ben, what's been going on, man? Welcome back. Hey there. Thanks for having me on the show again. It's good to be here. And today we're actually going to talk about uh, government support for agriculture and farmers in the United States. So it's uh, a timely topic for us. Uh, this last week was actually election week here in the United States. And you know, it's always a good time and a good reminder that uh, there's a lot of bipartisan support for agriculture in the U.S. Uh, I was actually looking at a poll the other day, showed about 90 percent of Americans had a favorable view of the American farmer, and that, that goes across all parties. So definitely strong support for agriculture in the United States these days. So what do you see coming? I mean, is this election going to have any impact on, on farm subsidies or anything like that that we can tell? Yeah, we, we certainly don't have a crystal ball on that in terms of what the, the future will hold. I, I think, number one, I would reiterate the point that, you know, support for farmers has been a bipartisan issue for decades. Um, and so we don't see that really changing. You know, the big story in the last couple of years has been really the increase in uh, government direct payments to farmers and sort of how those payments have been directed to farmers. So, you know, typically, uh, most financial support for agriculture in the United States is paid out and legislated through what's known as the Farm Bill. They uh, pass a new Farm Bill every four to five years. The last one was in 2018 and should have another one coming up uh, in 2023. And really what that bill does is outlines all the different programs that uh, can provide support, whether it's uh, federal loan guarantees or whether it's direct insurance payments uh, to farmers who are producing crops. So, you know, for for our purposes and for a lot of commodity crop production, the two programs that really everyone talks about are called the Agricultural Risk Coverage Program, or ARC, and the Price Loss Coverage, PLC. And those are sort of the two big programs that historically have provided, uh, you know, payments to farmers in, in any given year. And just to sort of give you some range or value on what that looks like. Typically over the last decade, there's been about $10 billion a year directed towards farmers out of the federal budget from these farm bill programs. And that's, you know, a little under 1% of the federal budget each year. So we're talking about ARC and PLC now. Are, are these what folks think of when you think of crop insurance? Explain a little bit more about those two programs. Yeah, sure. So the ARC and PLC are really yield loss and price loss coverage respectively. So yes, in, in effect, they're a form of, of crop insurance. What's interesting about them is they're, they're really tied to the land. So, uh, you know, there's, there's been a decoupling of these payments, these insurance payments away from 
agricultural production and actually attaching them to the land. So each piece of land will have a certain number of base acres and, and what the payment is in any given year is based on the number of base acres and your, your certified yield on that property. And so, you know, a lot of people have a misconception perhaps that, you know, these insurance programs are tied directly to what farmers are producing and therefore sort of driving decision making on the farm. Uh, but when in reality, a lot of the traditional farm bill programs are actually tied to the land itself and not changes in production year to year. So if those programs are tied to the land and the farmer is a tenant farmer, like in the case with acre trader properties, who applies? I mean, is the farmer applying based on how many acres he's farming or are these, do these, are these applied for by the landowner? Tell me how the cash flows. Yeah, sure. So it, it's going to depend on every different landowner's relationship uh, with the farmer they work with. Um, so in the case of AcreTrader, I can tell you, uh, we never participate in these programs. Any payments that might come through uh, crop insurance through the federal government always goes to the farmer in that case. Uh, the different individuals will have different arrangements, obviously on their own properties, but that's how we do it here. In terms of the calculation, there's one important thing that happens almost every year. Uh, which is you need to send in your planted acreage to your local FSA office. And, and that helps go into the historical accounting for what your uh, your base acre should be on any given property. So you need to make sure if you're renting your farm, you need to make sure that the farmer is sending in those planted acreages to the local FSA office on an annual basis. That happens in the summer. So for a farmer, what he's going to be able or willing to pay to the landowner for a lease is going to be somewhat tied to what he can expect from either ARC or PLC? To a certain extent, yes. I think you don't see that so much with ARC or PLC, but you've really seen in the last three or four years, which is sort of the next part of our conversation today, is sort of the changing face of direct payments uh, to farmers from the government. So, you know, as I mentioned, most of the financial support comes through the farm bill traditionally. Um, but the last three to four years have been really strange. So we've had uh, two crises in agriculture over the last, again, three to four years. The first being uh, the trade war with China. Obviously, that's uh, created significant financial damage to the American agricultural industry. And then the coronavirus epidemic. So everything from declining ethanol use to uh, slowdowns in beef processing and poultry processing, these have all sort of impacted uh, agriculture and farmers negatively and that has led to uh, what's known as sort of ad hoc uh, payment programs. So again, going back to the farm bill, if those are our structured programs. Those are things we have budgeted for on an annual basis through the farm bill. Um, there's this additional new type of program known as an ad hoc program that has been in response to these two crises. And those have been, uh, you may recognize some of these names. The first would be the market facilitation payment. Those are the sort of offset direct payments to producers to offset losses from the trade war. And then the coronavirus response has been really in three uh, separate programs. The first would be the, the CARES Act. The second would be the CFAP Act. And then the final would be the uh, PPP loans, which really you know, act as a grant at the end of the day when you, when you look at the accounting. So those have been the three main programs that have been you know, passed as a response to coronavirus. And, and what that's done, Joe, is taken the annual spending on agricultural payments from $10 billion a year. Uh, to about 40 billion they they budget this year so a pretty significant increase in the money being paid out to farmers by the government to respond to these two problems we've been seeing um, and sort of you know to come back around to your question and to answer it more directly 
what we have seen in the last couple of years is farmers making decisions about paying rent or picking up new acres or even buying a farm uh, based on how much of these ad hoc payments have been received simply because so much has gone into it, right? So you compare 40 billion to 10 billion, it's pretty obvious we've seen a significant increase in, in payments flowing through. So there have been some decisions that have been made uh, based on those programs, which at the end of the day uh, would be, you know, a little bit dangerous because again, they're not, they're not legislated and they're not budgeted. And so there's no guarantee it will exist every single year, uh, unlike those programs that are inside the farm bill. Man, that is so interesting to hear that basically you're talking about quadruple the amount of money flowing from the federal government to United States farmers. Now, that brings to mind two two questions for me. I mean, one, this kind of bipartisan support and, and really support from the federal government for farmers tells me exactly what you said. I mean, the government wants to see farmers and farming succeed, but it also worries me a bit because if the farmers are needing this type of aid, then that must mean that the markets that they're operating in, you know, are really hurting, like you said, from that, from the trade war and, and from the coronavirus pandemic. Do you see these two things? And if, if I'm reading that correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, what does this mean for land values? I mean, part of me says this is, this just is just further evidence that farming is going to, you know, and farmland values are going to stay where they are and continue to grow. What do you think about that? Yeah, Joe. So the first thing I would say about that is, you know, one of the big takeaways is that the government will not allow the bottom to fall out of farmland, right? So it will continue to support farmers even during uh, times of emergency like this. The second thing I would say is, you know, if you look at what's going on with corn and soybean prices over the last two months, call it uh, October, September, you know, that's really a good counter narrative to this idea that, you know, we're going to need perpetual federal support for corn soybean farmers, for example, because, you know, China has got all-time highs on their purchases of corn, uh, record highs on uh, exports to China for that crop. And uh, soybeans are back over $10 again. So they're at, uh, you know, five, six-year highs. So I think, you know, that's a really good story to, to highlight here that it is not all doom and gloom in the ag sector. Uh, we have pretty good prices right now. Farmers are very optimistic going into the uh, winter here. And I think uh, it just goes to show you that, you know, none of us can really predict what are going to happen to commodity prices, but we've got to keep in mind it is a cyclical industry. And so, uh, you know, they're going to come around uh, down from their lows back to their highs. So to me, that's the, uh, the optimistic take here is that uh, we, we do need some of these programs to bridge uh, short-term pain within the ag sector, uh, but it does all come back around eventually. Yeah, it's it's really more votes of confidence for, for farmland as an asset class. And, you know, speaking of that, Ben, as we end this segment, we're going to be getting into discussing uh, if you can buy land through your 401k, through your IRA, uh, and, and if you can, what those rules are and what kind of land you can buy and, and that kind of thing. Can you buy acre trader properties through your IRA or through your 401k? Yeah, you sure can. So we, we have a uh, method of purchasing land on our platform, acrechair.com, where you can actually use a self-directed IRA. Mm-hmm. So if you have questions about that, uh, we have some uh, good FAQ on our website. And certainly you can contact us. Our email is just info at acretrader.com. Be happy to answer any questions folks have about uh, self-directed IRA investing in farmland. Well, we're going to be getting into that here in just a minute and maybe answering some of those same questions. But, well, you guys got anything new coming up? 
Yeah, we uh, we actually have two farms on the site right now. We've got a pretty interesting, it's a carrot farm out in California, and we also have an almond development. And then in the next week, we should be standing up a new uh, corn and soybean property in Indiana. So a good good amount of diversity on the site there, a lot of different crops, and uh, be looking for that new farm, Oh, usually on Wednesdays or Thursdays each week. Really cool, man. Well, Ben, thanks again for joining us and uh, sharing a little bit more about farmland values. We're going to be looking forward to talking to you again soon, buddy. All right. Thanks, Joe. All right, folks, I want you to do something for me real quick. Just take out your smartphone. And if you'd like to have this podcast emailed to you each week, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. Again, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. And you'll be prompted to give your email address. It's actually just Clint. We lock him in a closet. And he does that, you know, for several hours every day. Uh, so you can just text that and give us your email and we'll send you the new show each week. All right, folks, today we are going to be talking with Carla McEwen of IRA Innovations and learning what we can and can't do with our retirement accounts and our land investments. So Carla, welcome to Hunt Land. Before we get into all this now, I know you got to give your disclaimers. So tell us about IRA Innovations and tell us, get all the legal stuff out there. Thank you so much, Joe and Clint, and it's a pleasure to be here today with you and your audience um, to talk about how IRA Innovations can help you purchase land with your retirement funds. So uh, thank you for inviting me, and I'm excited to talk about how you can invest in non-traditional types of assets like land in your IRA. And at IRA Innovations, we were founded in 2003. So we are in our 18th year of operation and we're headquartered in Birmingham, Alabama. And we provide self-directed IRA custodial services. Um, we're the administrator um, and we give investors the opportunity to really invest in the full breadth of assets allowed by the IRS. We hold the non-traditional type assets like land. Uh, we, don't, we don't hold traditional assets like stocks, bonds, mutual funds, or CDs that a bank or a brokerage company would hold for you. Uh, we don't specialize in that. We hold the non-traditional. So real estate, private companies, you can lend money with your IRA, with promissory notes, all kinds of things you can do. Um, so, you know, we allow investors to take control of your retirement funds and invest in what types of assets that you're familiar with, that you understand like land. Um, you can invest in what you know best. So with a self-directed IRA, you make your own decisions uh, to what assets you want to invest in, and it puts you in the driver's seat. So you find your own deal. You bring it to us. We provide the education on a separate IRA. We facilitate the IRA transactions and provide the account administration for you. So um, you know, we work with the clients across the country, and we have a, a website. You can find out more about separated IRAs at uh, www.irainnovations.com. As we get started with the show, I do want to give our disclosure. IRA Innovations, we are not affiliated with National Land Realty or Great Days Outdoor Media. Um, we don't recommend any um, investments or promote any types of investments, uh, nor do we sell any assets. So um, we also do not provide any tax, legal, or investment advice. So we recommend that any investment advice be discussed with your own team of advisors, such as your attorneys, your accountant, or your financial advisor. Well, you're talking about discussing things with your advisors. I sat down with my financial planner last week, and sometimes we have to 
we have to really explain the ins and outs of a land investment when we're talking to folks that that don't do that. But everybody that listens to this show either owns land or is interested in owning land or wants to own more land. And so let's first just find out what kind of land can we use an IRA to buy? Basically, in a self-directed IRA, you can invest in any type of real estate related assets. So land is a great option. Basically, anything with a deed um, you can invest in with your self-directed IRA. So um, basically, the IRS in uh, IRS Publication 590, the IRS tells us what we cannot invest in with, the, with an IRA. Okay, so basically, there are two things you cannot invest in. You cannot invest in life insurance or collectibles, life insurance and collectibles. Collectibles are things such as artwork, rugs, antiques, jewelry, stamps, alcoholic beverages, things like that. Those are not allowed. So basically, what can you invest in? Pretty much everything else. You can invest in land with all types of IRAs. You know, if it says IRA, you can self-direct it. So that includes your traditional IRAs, Roth, uh, SEPs, you know, business plans like SEPs or simple IRAs, things like that. So any type of land that's got a D, um, you can invest in it. Carla, earlier in the show, we were talking with uh, Ben Maddox with AcreTrader. And AcreTrader has a really interesting platform and in that they actually put together land investments uh, with farmland and then they invite other investors to purchase portions of that land investment. So, you know, in a lot of cases, they have investments uh, through their platform that are $10,000, uh, you know, and so one of the limitations, I think, with having a self-directed IRA and and buying land is that land is typically going to be a, a higher higher purchase price than what a lot of people may have currently in their IRA. So if somebody's wanting to purchase a land investment and they don't have enough cash within their IRA, is there anything they can do or do they have to only look for those types of investments? Can they borrow money within an IRA or borrow against their IRA? An IRA you cannot use your IRA as collateral on a loan. So to answer that first question, um, you cannot assign an IRA as collateral. You cannot do that. So you can't go out to take a loan out with a lender and assign your IRA as collateral. That is not allowed. However, an asset within your IRA can be used as collateral against property purchase within the IRA. So, um, what does that mean? I mean, it's possible like for your IRA to um, you know, receive a loan to supplement your investment, but the loan must be a non-recourse loan okay, in the IRA. You know, a recourse, a non-recourse loan um, means that you cannot personally guarantee the loan. So because you are disqualified to your IRA and the IRS does not allow that. A non-recourse loan is the investment asset being financed within loan. So let's unpack that a little bit and, and break that down for an Alabama boy's language. It, it means it, Joe. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so if I'm looking at a piece of property and, and, it, and it's $100,000 and I, and I need a down payment of $20,000 and I have $30,000 in my IRA, am I going to be able to put that deal together using my IRA or do I need to move on? Um, it all depends. If you find a lender that will do a non-recourse loan within the IRA and lend you the money, you can do that in your IRA. You just cannot personally guarantee the loan. So as long as the asset will carry it, you're okay. Mm -hmm. 
you're okay, right? And then, or likewise, if you've already jumping ahead a little bit, if you've already done this once and you've got other assets inside the IRA, other land, and that could be a possibility too. It would be on that on that particular piece of land that you're borrowing against in the IRA. Right. Yeah, you can't you can't assign an IRA as collateral or asset that you're purchasing in the IRA. Carla, one of the to to that end, you know, where I see this used the most. Uh, and I've just by happenstance have probably worked with IRA innovations the most of any anybody in my career, you know, using this approach to buying land. If somebody's looking at a track and they've got funds to purchase, let's just say half the property through their IRA and half the property themselves through cash or a loan, is that okay? Is that possible? Yes, um, that's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up, Clint. Um, the good news is that it, it's possible for your IRA, you can partner with other funding sources. So you could partner with your own personal money outside of the IRA, kind of using a co-ownership structure. You could use two IRAs. So for instance, if you had a traditional IRA and a Roth IRA, you could purchase the land and split it between both of those IRAs. Or you could partner with um, another person's IRA or another investor's non-IRA money. So your IRA can partner with other funding sources um, to do the deal. What happens if you, you say you buy a track of timberland or farmland that's producing an annual rent or a semi-annual income with timber? When that income comes, what happens to it? Can it be dispersed out or does it have to stay within the bounds of the IRA? Any revenue or income generated from the asset in the IRA comes back to the IRA in proportion to, in proportion to what percentage of that asset the IRA owns. Okay, So that would work with any expenses that the asset incurs or any revenue or income the asset generates. It all goes in and out of the IRA according to what percentage of that asset the IRA owns. And then after that, it would just follow the normal rules of, of any IRA as far as distribution, dissolution, and things like that. Like yes. yes. Years. I, the, IRA, the IRA would follow it, the, the rules, the IRS govern rules for IRAs, yes, according to distributions at what age. You can take those out, paying your ordinary income tax, as far as your limits for contributions, things like that. That follows the same rules as IRAs, yes. So, Carla, obviously there are a lot of rules uh, with regards to IRAs and what we can and can't do, and, and we want to stay on the up and up. What about who you buy the land from? Are there any disqualified people that you can buy land from within an IRA? You know, with an IRA, you want to make sure you follow the rules about disqualified persons. Um, you cannot purchase land from a disqualified person. So I always talk about, you know, think about your IRA is like Mr. IRA and there's certain people your IRA cannot do business with. And these are those disqualified people that you mentioned. Um, you can't purchase from a disqualified person. You can't sell your land to a disqualified person. So, so, so basically you can't buy or sell land you already own or any disqualified person already owns. And that talk, that's a prohibited transaction, um, and uh, kind of they kind of IRS call, kind of calls that self dealing. So that is not allowed between you and your IRA. So who is a disqualified person? That would be any you. You're disqualified to your IRA and your spouse. Any lineal ascendant and their spouses. So that's your parents, grandparents, and their spouses. Any lineal descendants and their spouses, children and grandchildren. 
um, any company that you may own directly or indirectly, at least 50%, or any um, person that may have undue influence over the affairs of a company. So that's how the IRS defines a disqualified person. Outside of that, your siblings, your aunts, uncles, cousins are all okay. Uh, just not you, your spouse, and, and any lineal ascendants or descendants. Um, they cannot trade, loan, buy, sell, or extend services to um, the asset in the IRA. All right. So this next question is, is really the crux of it, I think, for, for most of the people that listen to this show. We're, we all share a common interest in land ownership. A lot of us really like to hunt. And so for a lot of our folks, they're interested in buying land because they can have an appreciating investment and, and whatever their crop is, you know, whether it's trees or, you know, or, or traditional crops like corn and soybeans, while those are growing, the value of that dirt's appreciating, but they're also able to use that land for hunting and, and other types of recreation. So, you know, we, we talked about the fact that you can't self-deal. Can you use your property that you own within an IRA? Um, the answer to that is no. Can't use it because you are a disqualified person to your IRA, as we talked about it a minute ago. You cannot um, gain any personal benefit or any personal use of the land if it's owned by the IRA, nor can any other disqualified person uh, use the land for personal use. So those that I mentioned earlier um, would not be able to use the land or provide any services to the land. And when I talk about that with land, you or, or a disqualified person cannot make any improvements. You can't do any work on the land. Um, you can oversee it and hire it done, but you cannot do it yourself or, or use it for hunting, fishing, or, or for any personal benefit. Does that change at all if your IRA doesn't own 100% of the property? Like you mentioned earlier, these alternate funding sources and partnering up with them does the land usage change at all if your IRA doesn't own the whole thing? No, it doesn't change. You still can't use it. Um, as long as the IRA owns a portion of that land, um, you would still be considered um, a disqualified person to the land. So you, even if it owns, you know, 20%, 10%, 20%, 30%, as long as it's in the IRA, you're still disqualified to it. So you would not be able to use it. Um, the only way, you know, you would, ever be able to use it is if you take distributions and distribute it all out of the IRA, then you can use it personally. You know, Clint mentioned earlier that that timber income, for example, can mm -hmm. be more of a semi-annual basis. It's not coming in every single year. We touched on what you do with the income when it comes in, but what about the expenses? So if you've got, say you buy a property and you've got to make, you've got to spend some money, uh, on that property and you don't have any income in that year, how is that funded and how can it be funded? Just, you have to remember any, you know, everything flows in and out of the IRA. All expenses must come out of the IRA. All revenue income comes back, must come back into the IRA. If there's not any kind of income producing revenue coming into the IRA, you could always move funds from another retirement account that you may have and just, you know, a lot of people forget about maybe some old 401ks that may be sitting out there from former employers um, where you worked. Those can be rolled into a self-directed IRA or any 403B or 457 plans. Thrift saving plans, all of those types of retirement plans can be rolled over into a self-directed IRA. So that's another source 
If you are eligible for a contribution, um, you can make that to your IRA. Uh, so those are just some of the other ways of maybe moving money from another retirement plan into your IRA to pay any type of expense that must come out of the IRA for the land. So Carla, I'm a, you know, I'm in my, let's say I'm a 35 year old. You're not though. Bought, You're not though, Clint. You're not there. Oh no, I want to be, but I'm not that age anymore. <laughs> but uh, I bought my first piece of land through my IRA and I'm ready to do it again, but I don't want to just buy another piece of property. I want to sell that first one and grow it into a larger track. What is that process and who can I sell it to? I think we've covered, we can't self deal. I can't sell it to myself or anyone in my direct lineage, but who, who can I sell it to? Um, Clint, you can sell that piece of property to anyone as long as they're not one of those disqualified persons we spoke about earlier. So sell it to who you want to, as long as they're not disqualified, then you can go and purchase, you know, another piece of property in your IRA with the funds that are in your IRA, because anything that you sold, the funds you know, must come back into those proceeds, must come back into the IRA. You can go and purchase another piece of property uh, with those funds. Um, or any additional funds you may have rolled over or transferred over from another retirement plan, or if there's not enough funds in that account, you can partner with other funding sources that we talked about. So then you go and purchase another piece of property. You hold on to that for maybe a couple years or however long. And then if you decide you're ready to take that piece of property out of the IRA because you want to be able to hunt on it or fish on it or build you know, clear roads or what have you, you can take out that um, land as a distribution over the course of one year, or you could stretch it out over several years. Um, just know as you take those distributions, you're paying the taxes on the percentage that you're taking out of the IRA. And each year that you, um, you, if, you if you stretch it out over a course of, say, three years, um, you would need to have a certified appraisal each year. Um, an appraisal is good for six months. So if you want to take it out, out over two tax years, you want to make sure it's within six months of each other. So maybe do it November of one year and then maybe February of the next year, just so you can use that same appraisal to cover two tax years. And as those distributions are made, once you pull out the final amount, uh, the IRA, then you're able to use it personally. If I'm following this right, this would the first sale would act just like if you had a lot of, you owned equities within your IRA and you sold those equities, turned them into cash, it would act similar. As long as it stayed within the IRA, you're okay. You're not subject to time constraints at all like you would be in a traditional setting for 1031 exchanges or anything like that. Right. As long as it, long as it doesn't leave the IRA, you're okay. You can you can take your time to find the next track. You just, you know, as you take your distributions, right? I mean, if you want to, or if you decide you want to sell it and out of the IRA, of course, you can sell it to anybody as long as they're not a disqualified person. Right. So I sell track one, I convert it to cash, and then I go find track two. I buy it and I can continue that process until I'm at the point in my life that I'm I'm retired and I want to start taking those distributions. So I've, I've sheltered that income from the sales throughout that period of time. So if I if I bought my first track and I was at, in a you know a high tax bracket and I've bought and sold land inside my IRA for years, protected the the capital gains treatment of those sales inside the IRA. So then once I actually do start taking the distributions about that, I'm now at a lower tax bracket because I'm retired. So I'm getting to realize all that, all of those capital gains throughout the years. And now I'm getting to actually take it back and use it myself on that final piece of property. But I'm doing all of that at a much lower tax bracket than I would have when I first 
bought the first track had I just bought and sold properties. If I'm hearing you correctly, Clint, and, and Carly, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, this would be a strategy for someone who maybe sees themselves in, in a piece of land as they, when they retire, but they're able to use tax advantaged funds right now to increase their buying power, number one, is, is what I see. And then, like you say, you are able to distribute that land to yourself in, in retirement to take back over the ability to use it. Right. You know, and, and as we mentioned, with the, with the, with the IRA, with the traditional, you're growing it tax deferred. With a Roth, it's growing tax free. And, you know, when it comes time for taking distributions or, um, you know, we always, you know, since we're not allowed to give tax advice or investment advice, we always refer you to your CPA or accountant to decide, you know, when's the best time for you to take your distributions or, or how to handle that based upon your entire retirement plan to know, you know, because distributions, uh, once you once you reach um, the age of 72, because, you know, the uh, SECURE Act raised the RMDs, required RMDs from 70 and a half to age 72. At age 72, your RMDs are not, you can take that from any of your retirement plans. It doesn't have to be your self-directed if you have another retirement plan. But again, your CPA can advise you on that. Right. So, Joe, what I'm seeing, you know, I know Carla can't answer this directly. You know, what you're looking at potentially doing is having, if you buy and sell a track within a year and you don't get any long-term capital gains treatment and you're in a 37% federal tax bracket today, but you've bought and sold land inside the IRA for two decades and now you're at a 0% capital gains bracket for that then versus where you might have been at anywhere between, like I said, 37 inside the first year now or 20 after a year now, um, you're saving anywhere between 20 and, and 37%. And taxes, you're deferring that forward to, to keep growing that nest egg into the next track all the way, you know, through those years and years of investments until it's time to start taking those distributions. So you could be one of those really look, lucky people that's now in the 0% bracket or worst case scenario, you're probably going to be around the 15%. And the thing I heard you say too, that, that uh, makes a lot of sense to me is, you know, not being on the clock like you are with a 1031 exchange. Carla, did, did I understand that correctly? That because there is no 1031 exchange, I mean, let's just use real numbers. If I buy, sell my land today within the IRA and those funds reach the IRA today, uh, if I wait six, 12, 18 months, I'm not going to pay any kind of taxes. That money's just going to sit there. It's not going to grow. Uh, during that period, but then I could use it to purchase the piece of land that I really want, as opposed to just what's on the market in the next 45 days. So you say if you if you sell a property in your IRA and then the funds are the proceeds are back in the IRA, sitting in your IRA, mm -hmm. and funds your IRA. Yeah, I mean the funds can sit in your IRA, the cash can sit in there for as long as you want while you look for another piece of property. You know, again, it's it's the the rules for a self-directed IRA. You know, follow basically the same rules with a, a traditional IRA, because that's what it is, an IRA. It's just growing, whatever's in there is growing tax-deferred in a traditional or tax-free in a Roth. So yeah, it can, it can sit there. Funds can stay in there. Um, now, we are not a bank, so we're not allowed to pay interest on the money, but it does. Um, the cash is FDIC insured while it's right. in your stuff IRA until you're ready to make, to, until you're ready to find your next deal. Exactly. I know we're focused on land here, but let's say that an opportunity pops up while you're in in that cash position for a condo or apartments or you know something else is still investment based real estate to a qualified party with a qualified party. 
uh, is it okay to jump into different asset classes and then back to land later? Absolutely. Um, in your IRA, like I said, you could hold uh, land, any kind of uh, uh, real estate. You could invest in private equities, private, private companies. You can lend money uh, with promissory notes. So you can have all different types of investments within your self-directed IRA. Carla, I know there were some changes in what's allowed within 401ks uh, with the CARES Act, the Coronavirus Aid Relief and Ec Economic Security Act. Been any changes with, with IRAs and what's allowed in, in just in the, in the times we're in right now? Um, with the CARES Act, you know, for 2020, they extended, you know, the date um, for making your annual 2019 contribution. And that was extended to July this year. Um, there's also some changes in there on um, taking some penalty-free, maybe withdrawals uh, from, from IRAs due to COVID-related events. I think those options do expire at the end of this year. So any of those, any of those changes uh, with the CARES Act, you know, you may want to consult with your CPA or tax advisor on that, how any of those changes may affect you or any of those you may want to take advantage of. The SECURE Act that was signed into law last December, um, again, we talked about how it raised, it raised the age for the required minimum distributions to age 72. And also it allows us people now to make contributions to a traditional IRA with no age cap. So as long as you're earning earned income, um, W-2 or 1099 income, you can make contributions. Um, there's no age to that. And then there were some some changes to inherited IRAs, um, some time frame changes on uh, when you how long you have to remove assets from an inherited IRA. It's like within 10 years of the IRA owner's death. So those were some changes there with the SECURE Act. And we do have a blog on our website that talks about that with uh, uh, with the SECURE Act in case anyone's interested in, in looking at that. So, Carla, if I'm one of those people that have these 401ks, old 401ks that are just sitting there and you know stuck in the market, is there a way that I can convert that to a self-directed IRA and start buying land or other non-traditional assets inside of it? Absolutely. A lot of folks have, you know, old 401k sitting out there with former employers um, that are sitting in the market. Um, we can easily roll those over to a self-directed IRA and you can use those funds to invest in uh, non-traditional assets like land, real estate, um, for investment purposes, that type of thing. So, yes, we have um, absolutely you can use those funds. So, Carlo, you know, uh, it's very interesting. You can take some of those 401k funds that maybe you've you've got from a previous employer that are just in the market. You don't really have a lot of control over how they're being invested and you're not getting any utility out of them. You know, I, I talked about earlier that a lot of the folks that listen are wanting to buy that piece of land for the investment aspect, but also the recreational component. And it doesn't sound like that that's going to be an option for them because of the self-dealing rules. But could someone use, in the right situation, could someone use their IRA funds to increase their purchase power of a, of a piece of land? And I'll, I'll give you a quick example. Let's say that, let's say that Clint has a piece of land for sale, and you know, it's 500 acres, and it's for sale for $2,000 an acre, so it's a million dollars. And I'm looking at buying a piece of land, but I'm, I only have the budget for a $500,000 piece of land. So I love his piece of land, but I can't afford it. But then I've got this IRA sitting over there and it has half a million dollars in it. Could I use those IRA funds and work a deal to 
to divide that piece of property buy the portion that I want to buy for my recreational use and then hold the rest of that land within the IRA, not for my personal use, but so that I can get that 250 acres that I really wanted out of the 500 he was selling. Does that make sense? Sure. Um, and Joe, I mean, you know, when you're looking at that piece of property, you'll, you'll, it'll have its own sales contract. Um, you can purchase that, that land as long as it has public access you know, to road, access to public roads, and just have a sales contract on that piece of property that the IRA um, purchases. Yes, I mean, you absolutely, absolutely can do, do that. Again, um, you don't, you can't use it personally. Um, any expenses that that piece of property you're purchasing, you know, must, any expenses must be paid by the IRA. And, but yes, you, you can do that with your IRA. But what I could do is then I could lease that land, that extra 250 acres. I could lease that to like my brother and let mm -hmm. him hunt it. He could stay in my cabin with me on my 250 and then go over there on his 250. And I wouldn't have to worry about him shooting my deer. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you could, you could, uh, you know, could lease it, lease it out, have some income producing property there um, for your, for your IRA. Man, that's really cool. Well, you guys are custodians of an IRA. If somebody is looking to invest within a self-directed IRA, whether it's in land or something else, what kind of questions do you think they need to ask when they're looking at different custodians? Um, some of the questions that we get, I think it's important um, to ask is, you know, when you're looking for a custodian or an administrator for your self-directed IRA, I mean, how many people do you work with? So when someone calls our office, you know, we we have um, during business hours, you always get a live person answering the phone. That may or may not be the case with other custodians. You deal with one person. Um, I work with you on getting you established with a self-directed IRA, helping you out with the application process, getting your account set up, getting the funds transferred or rolled over to the self-directed IRA. Um, then you work with a partner with another person in our office, um, Alicia Holcomb, who is um handles all of all of the uh, investment purchases. So you deal with one person for your investment purchase. So basically you deal with myself on getting things set up, one other person in our office to actually facilitate your deal and close and get your deal closed. So you're dealing with two people and that's always a benefit and really differentiates us from a lot of our competitors because we hear you sometimes work with multiple people with others. So you know, you always have my direct work cell phone numbers. If you get questions, um, we're easy to reach. You can get your questions answered. You know, we th these are some of the things that we have uh, clients tell us and other companies we work with say that our customer service really differentiates, differentiates us from our competitors. Well, Carla, it's, it's been really interesting. I know my, my, my mind's racing here thinking of all the different mm -hmm. ways that I could use an IRA and use some of those funds. And uh, it's, it's been fun to talk with you about it. If somebody wants to get in touch with you and work on setting up a self-directed IRA. What's the best way to reach out to you guys? Best way to get in touch, you can start with me. Um, I'm Carla McEwen. You can reach me directly on my, my cell at 205-855-8131. Again, it's 205-855-8131. Um, you can also reach me by email at Carla, C-A-R-L-A, at IRAinnovations.com. You know, you, you want to plan ahead if you're looking at um, investing in non-traditional assets like land with, with the self-directed IRA. We want to get a, a head start, get you set up, talk through your deal. Every deal is a little different. So we kind of talk in general terms 
on this show, but you'll want to, we'll want to kind of go through your deal, discuss it and um, talk about it because everything is a little different, can be structured a little differently. I look forward to working with you all if you're, if you're interested in a separated IRA and um, also our website, www.irainnovations.com. Got a lot of good blogs out there on investing in uh, real estate with IRAs amongst other things. A lot of good information and webinars there as well. Clint, I really like the aspect of, you know, investing in land within your IRA. One, I mean, takes a lot of pressure off of you, like what you have when, you, when you're doing a 1031 exchange. Yeah, that's probably the, one of the main benefits I see. I mean, the, your cash is not making anything for you while it's sitting there. But at the same time, if you've got something that's further out time-wise than a 1031 allows for, and you don't want the income until your retirement years, or maybe not at all, uh, you're just setting this up for your family, you know, where they can inherit the IRA, then this is a great benefit because it allows you more time to strategize in that regard. Yeah, you know, I think you, it, it allows you to create better arbitrage opportunities too. You know, you may find that because of whatever circumstance, you know, I mean, we all we all remember 2007, 2008, when properties were were selling for unbelievable amounts higher than they'll ever sell for again. It's not to say that, you know, an opportunity like that wouldn't come about, or maybe there's a really unique year in the timber markets where you're able to get a lot more for timber than, than what you would have. And, you know, so there, there could be a situation where you could get a lot more money for, for that piece of land. But the issue with that is if you don't own it within something like an IRA and you want to take it and not pay taxes on it, when you sell it, now you've got to use that 1031 and now you're on the clock to purchase something else. And maybe you'd rather wait uh, a while. You don't want to be forced to make this. Yeah. You don't want to be forced to make, to buy in a high market just because of that, those calendar days. So it gives you an opportunity to sit back and wait for that next opportunity. And you know, you can't leave it in cash, but you know, like we discussed, you can also jump into something else. So you can go into private equity or back into the market or whatever you want to do. Uh, the stock market that is until it's time and then liquidate again, come back by the next piece of land and then do it all over again, you know, up until you're, you're ready to take it out in the form of distributions or just leave it there for your family. Very cool, man. I like this land business. There's just always another angle. Creative finance is pretty cool too. Folks, we hope you enjoyed the show and uh, that's going to wrap it up for us this week. As always, please be sure to subscribe, rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Hope you guys stay safe out there. We'll talk to you next week. This week's show has been brought to you by Alabama Ag Credit. Buying real property isn't the same as buying in town. If you're in the market to purchase your own piece of paradise or need an operating line for your farm, give our friends at Alabama Ag Credit a call. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops. Because sometimes natural resources need financial resources. And while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. And also, Alabama Black Belt Adventures and their new coffee table book, Black Belt Bounty, celebrates the traditions of hunting and fishing so deeply embedded in the folks who get to call the Alabama Black Belt home and the folks who enjoy. It's got unbelievable writing from award-winning writers, excellent photography, and some really awesome recipes. If you want to pick up a copy, just go over to the Alabama Black Belt Adventures website at alabamablackbeltadventures.org slash blackbeltbounty. 
and also brought to you by Wildlife Management Solutions. The experts at Wildlife Management Solutions can guide you on selecting the best forage for your soils and goals. So give them a call at 877-400-8089 or check out their website with more information and a full dealer list at productsforwildlifemanagement.com.